This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Man, it's good for me to be uh, back with you this week and to have the opportunity to share with you um, out of God's Word. But I think I have to begin tonight with a little bit of a confession, okay? I am a recovering control freak. Anybody else in the room besides me? Not willing to confess that yet. All right, well, uh, I quite prefer that things be done my way. Um, I hate to be caught off guard or taken by surprise. I like to know what's coming, and I like to be in charge. However, if life has taught me anything, it's taught me that I'm not in charge. I'm not in control. After all, I work at a church. I have a wife who happened to come with me this weekend, and I have two little boys. They're 9 and 11. And nothing will wreck your sense of being in control quite like having children. I know some of y'all aren't ready for that yet, but it's just the reality. You see, despite my best efforts, I am completely unable to ensure that things go according to plans. Well, my plans. So like I said, I'm in recovery. But if we're honest... um, I think most of us probably have a deeper sense that the things around us are not under control. I mean, it doesn't take you long to watch the evening news and realize that there are tsunamis and earthquakes and terrorism and brutal political regimes. And the world really seems to be reeling from one tragedy after the other, one atrocity after another. But but the chaos is not just in other places. It's not just out there. It, it's, it's close at home. It's, it's around us. It's here. We hear stories about unrestrained sexual abuse or the devastating realities of racism or mass shootings and the chaos in our own government. And maybe, like me, you have the unsettling sense that all is not well in the world. But that feeling that life is in crisis tonight might be more personal for you. Maybe school isn't going uh, like you wanted it to, or your job is not secure, or maybe you don't, you don't have a job. Maybe you're not on the career path you had hoped to be on by this point in your life. Maybe you're experiencing some kind of physical pain, or you're struggling with a recent medical diagnosis, or it could be that for some of you, your family's just falling apart. The, the, the family unit that had kind of been the source of stability for you isn't stable anymore. Or maybe it's just that you don't have the family you thought you'd have at this point. Maybe the dreams of being married and having children haven't come true yet. You're beginning to wonder if they ever are. And your life isn't at all what you dreamed it would be. This isn't the picture you had for yourself. So what I want to ask tonight is when disappointments rise and when crisis looms large, what can you and I do? What should we do? How how should you and I respond when we feel overwhelmed and out of control? In the next few minutes, what I want to do is I want to show you from the life of Jesus 
how he responded in crisis, and how that, I think, should form for you and I a, a pattern for how you and I can respond when, when life is falling apart. If you got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look together at verses 32 to 36. As soon as you get there, for many of you, uh, this will be a familiar spot. Some of you, this might not be quite so familiar for you, so let me set the stage. Uh, Jesus has finished about three years with his disciples, and he's on the front end of heading to the cross of being crucified. And before that happens, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and he's taking some time to pray with his disciples before uh, he actually is taken in custody and, and transported into the presence of the government there and put on trial and then uh, condemned and crucified. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Let's read it together. I'm reading from the New International Version. So if yours doesn't sound just like this, don't let it throw you off, all right? Verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Please don't let the familiarity with this rob you with the reality of what is happening here. The crisis for Jesus is real. It's not imagined and it's not exaggerated. Unlike many of the impending crises that, that you and I face, whether they are real or imagined, Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. He knew the full extent of what was about to come upon him. There was no ambiguity or uncertainty. That's why he says in verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Listen, Jesus knows what's going to happen. You, you recognize this, that with you and I, most of our crises, what makes them so difficult is that we don't know what's going to happen. And for us, many times, the imagined is worse than the reality. But you see, for Jesus here, he knew what was going to happen. He knew that he would be betrayed by one of his disciples. He knew that his closest friends were about to abandon him. He knew that he would be beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross. And on that cross, he would endure all of God's wrath for our sin. Listen, Jesus knows what's coming. He heard all the prophecies, like the one of Isaiah 53, that says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen, Jesus knew in this moment the pain that was coming. Not just the physical pain, but the emotional pain. He knew the separation from the Father he was about to endure. 
He knew the brokenness that he would experience in his body and the hell he was going to endure on our behalf. Listen, his crisis was of a greater magnitude than anything you and I could ever even imagine. More painful and more distressing than anything either any of us will ever have to endure. And so for that reason, what Jesus does in this crisis as it unfolds is an, an appropriate guide for how you and I should respond when heartache and hardship and disappointment and crisis come our way. Very simply, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. But it's not just that he prayed, but what and how he prayed that offer hope and help to us. I want us to look both at Jesus' approach to this moment and also his prayer tonight. And there are two really important observations that I want to make before we look at the prayer itself. The first one is this. You might want to jot this down. First, Jesus shared the crisis with his closest companions. Jesus shared the crisis with his closest companions. Look, verse 33 says this. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. Look at me. Jesus was not a lone ranger. He did not, he did not go boldly into this all by himself. He invited his best friends, his community, to walk with him. I want you to see here that this was Jesus' pattern. This wasn't just something Jesus did in this moment. It was the way he lived. He regularly drew these guys up close to himself to share in the experience of the, and to share and experience the work of God in him. In Mark 5, when he goes to heal Jairus' daughter, you know who he takes with him? Peter, James, and John. In Mark 9, when he goes up, the mountain of transfiguration. He takes Peter, James, and John with him, and there they witness that transfiguration, and they see him glorified. Listen, they were his closest friends, his confidants. And so in his time of difficulty, these men are his support. So he humbly asked them to pray with him, to help him shoulder his load. But it wasn't just about him deriving comfort from their presence. Listen to me. It was also for their benefit. Don't, don't miss this. You see, Jesus knew that pretty soon they were going to face crises of, crises of their own. And his invitation to them was he wanted them to come up close and watch and learn not just from him, but learn from the experience. Not only was he demonstrating how to handle agony and pain, he was letting them see the faithfulness of God in the midst of the difficulty. You see that? You, you see, the, the, those disciples walked away having had the experience of seeing Jesus confront the biggest crisis of his life. Listen, the, the application is obvious, I think. You need to be in a community group. You need to be in a small group. You need to be connected to other people. You need to cultivate godly friendships. Listen, you need the body of Christ in your life. People who will walk with you through crisis and, and help you shoulder the load. But listen, you don't just need to be in a small group for your own benefit. You need to be in a community group for the sake of others. 
You need to let them see the faithfulness and goodness of God in the midst of pain and suffering. When you aren't in community, when you aren't in a small group, when you aren't in a discipleship group, a community group, whatever you want to call it, when you're not connected like that, listen to me, you're not just depriving yourself, you're, you're robbing other people. You're, you're taking from them the opportunity to see God work in your life. Listen, if you don't expose the need in your life, then the supply of God won't mean anything to anybody. If you don't uncover your weakness, then the strength of God will not be obvious to them. But it's when you walk with other people through pain and difficulty and hardship that they get to see the provision, the faithfulness, the goodness of God in your life. Michelle and I, yesterday, um, were flying here, and uh, we were scheduled to be on a 7, I don't know, 705, 710 flight out of Raleigh-Durham, we were going in the logical direction of JFK in order to come to Austin. And uh, when we got up at 445, uh, I had a little flash on my screen from Delta saying, your flight's been delayed. And uh, what was going to be a 45-minute turnaround in JFK was turning into a 10-minute turnaround. And I knew that wasn't possible, so I called Delta. Anyway, we got rerouted. And I, I was pretty frustrated by it, to be perfectly honest. And... Uh, because it wasn't what I had planned, okay? We've already established that. I like things to go according to plan. Uh, don't look at me smugly, because I know at least half of y'all are in the same boat as me. You know, you just got on your little church face like, oh, God bless him. Um, so anyway, I was kind of frustrated. We're standing in the line uh, waiting to get on the plane, and around the corner comes a couple that's in our small group. And they were headed on a trip to Las Vegas. And guess, guess where they were seated on this flight? They were seated on the same row as us. And this couple had had a really difficult day the day before. And because we've walked with them and we know a lot of what, go, what is going on in their life, it, man, it was like God's provision for us and for them because we were able to encourage them and be a shoulder for them and, and on the front end be a part of what God is doing in their life. And that came to us because we're living in relationship with people. And I'm just saying to you, you need people in, that, in, in your life like that. The second thing I want you to see about this is that Jesus cultivated his prayer life before the crisis hit. Write that down. Jesus cultivated his prayer life before the crisis hit. Listen, if you wait till you're in trouble to try to figure out how to call 911, you're in trouble. You need to know how to connect with help before help comes. You know, you don't need to be Googling what to do when you're in trouble. In the moment that you're in trouble, you need to know. You see, if you look at, G at carefully at Jesus' prayer here, you'll see that it is remarkably similar to the model prayer he gave the disciples, the one that we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. I'll draw some of that out as we walk through the prayer in just a moment. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus prayed the way he did in the middle of crisis because he was in the habit of praying this way. This wasn't new to Jesus. You see, Jesus prayed the way he did in a crisis because he was in the habit of praying that way. Over and over again, the Gospels tell us that Jesus withdrew to a solitary place to pray. 
Mark 1.35 says it this way. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Prayer was not crisis management for Jesus. It was a way of life. He prayed before he broke the bread and fish and fed the 5,000. He prayed before he raised Lazarus from the dead. He prayed for his disciples before he sent them out. He prayed from the cross. Look at me. If Jesus thought prayer was necessary for his life, how dare you and I charge into life and act like it's optional or make excuses for the lack of prayer in our lives? If the Son of God thought it was necessary, then you and I need to take note of that and understand that he's setting for us a pattern for how you cultivate relationship and stay connected to God. Listen, if you want to pray well in difficulty, then you need to cultivate the habit of praying rightly in the ordinary. I'm a musician. Uh, play the piano, and I've heard it all my life. My guess is some of you have heard it too. Practice makes, let's try that again. Practice makes, practice makes perfect. You see, if you want to excel in praying, then you start by praying. So whether you or and I are in the middle of an urgent situation or not, we all need to learn from Jesus' prayer here, okay? So let's look at it together. Let's take it apart and consider what Jesus prayed. Verse 36, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I want to make one observation. This prayer is not complicated. There are no big words in it. It's not flowery and impressive. Everybody that can pray this way. This is not overly eloquent. It's not poetic. Nobody would be unduly impressed by this prayer. It's really quite simple, but extremely powerful. And the first thing I want to say to you tonight is there's not a soul in this audience tonight who can't learn to pray this way. Do you understand what I'm saying here? This is not impressive. Nobody's going to, when he finished, nobody's going to say, wow, that was really beautiful. Love the way you put that together and the words you used and the alliteration and all the metaphors and wow, the way you quoted a bunch of scripture. That was just, that was awesome. Wow, you're a really good prayer. Nobody's going to say that. It's simple. It's pure. It's honest. It's the heart of Jesus talking to the heart of his father. And listen to me, don't make excuses. Don't make excuses for why you don't pray. Notice how he begins, verse 36. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Much like his instructions to his disciples to begin their prayers with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus starts by focusing on God's fatherly compassion and sovereign power. 
Look, he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Listen, it's easy to read this and not give it the weight it's deserve, it deserves. This is not a casual greeting. This is not just the way you start. This is not a polite way to begin a prayer. This is an expression of tenderness and intimacy and delight. Papa, Daddy, Abba, Father. It's an exaltation of the character of God. Listen, to say Abba, Father, is to adore God as he has revealed himself to us. Do you know that Psalm 103, 13 says this? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You see, God has identified himself as a compassionate, tender, loving, caring father. And when we pray, we must, begin, we must learn to begin by looking full into the face of our Father and adoring our merciful God. And when we're in a difficult spot and we're tempted to question his character and to disbelieve his love for us, listen, we have to, re we have to repeat this truth. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, because of the Lord's great love for us, we're not consumed. For his compassions... His fatherly compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen to me. You don't know God loves you because you feel like he does. That's not the standard for knowing you're loved. You don't know God loves you because everything in your life is working out like you want it to. Listen to me. You know that you are loved by God because his word tells you you are. The word of God tells you that nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not even hardship or difficulty. Not even disappointment or crisis or grief. None of it. You are loved but listen, there's another aspect of this that we can't overlook. To call God Father is to identify yourself as a son or daughter. Listen, I love you guys, but there's not a single one of you in this room who can call me Daddy. There are only two human beings on this planet who can legitimately call me Daddy. They are my sons, Hudson and Haddon. And when they call me daddy, they represent themselves as my children. Listen, when you call out to God, you are identifying yourself as a son or daughter of God. And listen, a child who has every expectation of being heard and of being welcomed in with open arms. Listen, my boys have entrance into my presence that you will never have. You tracking with me? They can come in to my presence when you can't. And they can expect me to respond to them in a way you can't. You don't have that. I'm not trying to be ugly or mean. You just don't have that right. I don't have that responsibility. My boys can come ask me for money, and I may or may not give it to them. Trey, Trey can't call me and ask me for money. Partially because he don't have my telephone number. But I'm not his daddy. You see, a child, a child has an expectation of being heard. A child has a, an expectation of being welcomed 
Isn't that what it means to be a son or a daughter? Isn't that what you and I expect, that our Father would welcome us in? Isn't that what we want? Listen to what Ephesians 2 says about those of us who've been saved by God's grace. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The scripture calls us sons of disobedience who followed the passions and desires of our flesh. It calls us children of wrath. But then verse 4 says this, but God. who I love that, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you've been saved and adopted. You're no longer a child of wrath, but an adopted son or daughter by God's grace in Christ Jesus. Can I ask you something tonight? Do you know that you are a son or daughter of the Most High God? Do you know that tonight? Have you by faith in Jesus been adopted into the family of God? Is that your experience? Listen to me. Look at me tonight. There are no grandchildren. You're not in the family of God because your mama and daddy were in the family of God. You're not a son or daughter of God because you were born into it. You don't become a son on the basis of what you do or where you were born or who your parents were or if they went to church or not. You become a son or a daughter of God by trusting in what Jesus has done for you. And for some of you, the most important thing you could do today is to embrace the rich mercy and grace of God that can make you alive and make you a son or daughter of God. It's not complicated. All you have to do is be willing to say something like this. God, you know what? I know I'm a child of wrath because I've been living according to my own desires. I've been doing my own thing, going my own way. But I believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin. And I'm going to turn from my sin. And I'm asking you, Father, to save me and make me alive. I trust you. I surrender my life to you. The faith that emanates from a prayer like that is the faith that saves you. I want to be really clear before I go for any farther tonight. You're either a son or daughter of God, or you're not. There's no in-between. There's no maybes. You either are or you're not. You're a child of wrath, or you're a child of grace. And if you are a son or a daughter of God, then I want to exhort you, adore and worship your heavenly Father. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Listen, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you are a beloved son, a treasured daughter. So bask in it, revel in it, delight in it, embrace it, and worship your God. Abba, Father, Jesus said. There was no confusion on Jesus' part about who he was and what his relationship to God was. He knew he was a beloved son. Abba, Father, he said, verse 36, everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. This is a resounding declaration of faith in the middle of unbelievable turmoil. 
This is not an empty platitude. It is anchored in all that he has seen God do. Listen, Jesus was there in the beginning when the world was created. He watched God fling the stars into space. Watched him breathe life into man. He watched him separate the land and the sea. He saw it all happen. Jesus was there in the beginning when the world was created. God made everything out of nothing. So he knows his father can do anything. Jesus was there when God began to fulfill the promise to make a great nation out of impotent Abraham. He saw the father rescue his children from bondage of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. Jesus was there when the lame walked and the blind received their sight and the dead walked out of the tomb. Listen to me. He knows nothing is impossible for God. Jesus had seen God do the impossible. So in this impossible situation, he remembers the deeds of God and that gives him the courage to ask. Listen, y'all, in crisis and difficulty and hardship, we need to do what Jesus did. He set his gaze not on his circumstance, but on God the Father. And he started with who God was and what he could do. He came into the presence of God with adoration and thanksgiving. And the strength to forge ahead came not from a change in his circumstance, but from the steadfast character of God. Listen, our best praying in any situation will not come from a thorough examination of our circumstances, but from a thorough exaltation of the character of God. Your best praying is not going to come from your ability to, to describe your plight or your terror or your trauma to God. Your best praying is going to come from a clear understanding of who God is and what he can do. Listen, more than I need to know the detail, more than I need for him to know the details of my situation, I need to be able to and to describe it to God. More than I need to formulate a plan of action and ask him to do what I think is best, more than anything else, I need to know who God is and who I am in him. I need to be familiar with his ways. I need to recall his deeds. I need to recount his promises. Because more than praying is about getting something from God, it's about getting to God. More than I need what, I, what he can do, I need who he is. Now let's look at the second half of Jesus' prayer. Verse 6b. Take this cup from me, he said, yet not what I will, but what you will. Again, we see Jesus following the pattern for prayer that he gave in the model prayer. You remember this? When he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. I, I find this really intriguing. I want to ask you this question. Why did Jesus say, take this cup from me? Why headed to the cross, knowing what he was, what, what, what he was up against, knowing what was about to happen? Why did Jesus say, take this cup from me? Do, do you understand what he's saying there? Do you get it? Do you know what Jesus is saying? He said, I don't want to do this. Can, can we do something else? Can, can, can this be accomplished another way? Is there a plan B? Here's what's intriguing to me about that. Jesus knew there was no plan B. Je Jesus knew, Revelation 13, 8, that he was the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. <laughs> Jesus knew there wasn't another plan for salvation. So why did he ask? I think here you have the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus colliding. 
Jesus fully human, wanting to avoid the unimaginable pain that was before him, and Jesus fully divine, willingly participating in the eternal plan for the redemption of the world. Listen to me. This verse gives us both permission and direction. Permission. Listen, I can, I can honestly cry out to God. In this prayer, Jesus gives me permission to come before him and say, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. I, I don't want to walk down this path. I don't want to endure this pain. I don't, I don't want to have to experience this heartache. Can we please do it another way? Look at me. Jesus can handle your complaint. He can handle you being real and honest. He can meet you in that moment. You know what Jesus can't handle? He can't handle you acting like it's all right when you don't feel that way on the inside. Jesus wants you to be real with him. He can deal with your objection. According to this prayer, it is perfectly acceptable to ask God to change your circumstance. And the scriptures are full of instances where God did just that. People cried out and God met them. God helped them. God changed their circumstance. You not only have permission, listen to me, you've been instructed to ask. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Listen, clearly God expects us to ask. Not only does this prayer give me permission, it also gives me direction. He didn't just say, take this cup from me. He said, yet not what I will, but what you will. I want to say this to you tonight. This is not resignation. It was not reluctant surrender. It was not the result of Jesus being defeated or overpowered by God. It was joyful, expectant embrace of the plans and purposes of God. As surely as Jesus knew the pain that was in front of him, he knew the end result that would come from that. He knew the salvation that God was working through his suffering. You know how I know that? Because Hebrews 12, 2 says this, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross despising its shame. More than Jesus wants to escape pain and suffering in this moment, he wants to see salvation purchased for mankind. The heart that longs for a change of circumstance must also have a greater longing. A longing to see God accomplish his purposes in the way he deems best. Let me be really clear here. You will never be able to pray, yet not what I will, but what you will, until your heart is secure in Abba Father, Everything is possible with you. You got to start with who God is and what he's able to do. I like to say it this way. When you know who you're talking to and you know what they can do, it changes what you ask for and how you ask. When you know who you're talking to and you know what they can do, it changes what you ask for and how you ask. 
You see, Jesus knew that God had the power to bring something far better out of his suffering than would come if he escaped his suffering. He knew that God was up to something bigger than just releasing him from pain and hardship. He knew God was working salvation for him. Here's what I want to do tonight. I want to challenge you this week to begin praying this way. It might not come naturally to you at first. In fact, I'll be honest with you. More often than not, my reflex when I begin to pray is to start to list out all the things I need God to do. All the things I want him to do. But I want to tell you that if you will discipline yourself to pray through the character of God and the work of God, to spend some time worshiping God and adoring him, to, to give thanks for what he has done and let those things take root in your heart. Let me tell you what they do. They dispel fear. They bring you confidence and faith. So this is why you need to pray with your Bible open. You need to start with the Word of God because the Word of God tells you who God is and what he does. And you need to start there and you need to call it out and you need to remind yourself of the truth of the person of God and his work. And you need to let that build faith in you. L listen, you need to go back through what God's been doing in your life recently and you need to write down some of the places where God has answered prayer and what God has provided and where God has blessed and where God has shown himself to be faithful because those experiences need to become the foundation for you when you enter crisis that says, you know what? God's good. God's faithful. God provides. And you need to call that out so that when you begin to lay out your circumstance, your ache, your heartache, your pain, your grief before your God, you're not doing that from a place of desperation because you know who you're talking to. And you know he loves you. And you know Romans 8:32, how will he who did not spare his only son not also along with him freely give us all things? So I want to encourage you this week to use the scriptures to call out the character of God, Abba, Father, and his work and say to him, you know what, everything is possible for you. And once your heart is saturated with that, then begin to be honest with him. God, I'd love for you to change this circumstance because I trust you and I trust what you do. I'm going to say to you, not what I will, but what your will. Can I, can I ask you, would you commit yourself this week, between now and next Sunday, six days, you can start tonight and make it seven. Would you set this as your pattern of praying? Abba, Father, everything is possible with you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Can we pray together? Daddy, Father, so good for me to know 
for us to know that we're your children. We've been bought by your blood. We belong to you. And as a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on us. God, you've done that over and over and over again in my life. And I know you've done it for my brothers and sisters seated in this room. So thank you. God, I've watched you do some incredible things. I've watched you work miracles and and, and bring uh, supply and provision I didn't, I didn't think was coming. And, and God, I know you can do anything. So Lord, e- even tonight, we, we want to pray very specifically for, for Mike Mobley's dad. God, we want to pray not just for his physical healing, but God, we want to pray for spiritual healing. God, we want to pray for you to open his eyes and his heart to see and know that you are God. God, we want, to, we want you to bring not just physical life, but spiritual life, full and rich to him. Because, God, we believe that that's what you are about. That's what you want. So, God, we ask for it. And we ask for it, God, believing that your word tells us you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God, thank you that we can call out to you and cry out to you that you'll hear and answer us and do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine. God, thank you that you're that kind of God. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.